in this episode of the Critical Oxygen Podcast. They're all peripherally related to critical power, right? And that, that's the that's the beauty of this measurement, um, especially incorporating W prime. It's an it's a complete description of performance, something that no other threshold measurement provides someone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we're joined by continuing guest host, Dr. Robbie Jacobs, where we're planning on discussing critical power and critical oxygenation. Dr. Robbie Jacobs, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, we're excited. Um, I think last week we spent a lot of time talking about your new paper, which was actually just published today as yeah, the you know, uh, came out yeah, today yeah. yeah of the time that we're actually uh recording and we'll we'll do a deeper dive i think on that paper uh coming up but it was all about modeling a sub two hour marathon and what the actual requirements would be uh to accomplish that so i'm, I'm really excited to look at that and the big bent that you guys seem to have i read the abstract right before this was are the recommendations of 30 to 90 carbohydrate or grams of carbohydrate per hour, are those adequate if you're trying to support extremely high intensity exercise, right? Like a, like a sub two hour marathon. So, um, I won't, I won't spoil it quite yet. I'll let other people, you know, probably read it. Um, and then we'll go over it in greater detail, uh, in a, in a subsequent episode. It's hefty. When you open it up, it's 65 page PDF currently. Oh my God. You, uh, you, you never half-ass anything. Um, I think, I think with that, uh, that mitochondrial temperature paper too, that's a, that's a beast of a paper. I was like, oh my gosh. You're like, Hey, I think this is like, you know, my, my, my crowning jewel. And I was like, okay, send it over. So you sent it over to me and I opened it. I was just like, I can't read that right now. I was just like, (laughs) when I have my students, it's so weird, right? Because you're so immersed in your research that it just... Totally makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I have my students, because I don't have my students read a lot of my work, although I'm starting to kind of increase it because, I don't know, it just feels dirty. It's like, here, I'm teaching you. Yeah. I'm telling you what to think, how to think, and everything, and now read my papers. It just feels yeah. like indoctrination to me. But <laughs> some of these papers, they they really express points that I want my students to pick up on. And so I'll have them read it. They're not happy when I assign that article. (laughs) And you know, it's, it's one of those things where, where maybe, maybe it's like, okay, we're going to read, you know, the the first third of it, you know, and then discuss it or something like that. Cause it is daunting, right. When you're a, when you're a a student and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to read 120 pages worth of, you know, (laughs) articles and then on top of that i'm gonna have questions so i'm gonna have to go you know like look at the references and 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 figure those out too um it's i you're laughing because i think you get a a a small sense of pleasure out of the torture of making your not at all you know i I really wish i i think uh one thing that chat gpt is really going to help me with is communication Mm -hmm. you know i i uh I like writing too, but sometimes I think that I like to write in a way that may not be the easiest to pick up. You're you write like uh, the the people who wrote like the Odyssey or yeah. Don Quixote or That's you know Karsten those, Lundby those always sort says. of things. <laughs> he always uh, calls my writing prose. He's like, keep that prose out of science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but uh, it, it's so fun. I don't know. It's it. I have to when you write. So often, it has to be fun. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's maybe you need to write a book. John Quixote, <laughs> isn't that a big one? I've never actually read it, but it's like a long <laughs> sure, book, right? Sure, I don't know. I've never read it either. It's just funny that that's what came <laughs> came to you. Yeah, that's that's what comes to mind when I think of long prose books. Uh, is Don Quixote and uh, the Odyssey, the Homer and the Odyssey. <laughs> Um, all right detraction aside so today uh we both both robbie and i read um a a really good review on critical power and it was written by uh andy jones and ani vana vanatalo um back in 2017 i'll link it in the show notes 
Um, it's a good but, one. It's open yeah. access. And so if you're interested in this topic, um, you know, Andy Jones currently is one of the biggest names uh, really pushing the critical power research. And it's an excellent article. Mm -hmm. uh, describes everything very well. I would highly recommend the listeners go to that article and read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll link it. I'll link it in the show notes. And, and like you said, it's, it's open access. So, so anyone who wants to can actually download it and read it, which is really, really cool. Um, so I think, I think what we can start with is just like a quick definition of what critical power actually is. And it, well, not a quick definition. Good. I hope you take this one. <laughs> yeah, I'll take, I'll take this one. Um, it's uh this is this is piggybacking off of you know our our second threshold you know, discussion where it's like okay well what is truly the the delineation point between sustainable and unsustainable and i think your definition was i can't remember the acronym that you used oh, yeah. but it was like it was do like do as much know, as possible for as long as possible yeah 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 do as much as possible for as long as possible so so that that threshold is actually going to shift and going to change right depending on what your race is However, what uh, what this with this idea of critical power is is that there was a noticeable relationship between the ability for humans, and this actually extends across other uh, mammalian mammalian species, is that for very short duration uh, outputs, there's a fairly high power output, and as you extend that out, there is a uh, an asymptotic relationship or a pair or yeah, an exponentially uh, decaying relationship between the ability to maintain power output and how long you're going to be sustaining things. So um, it was first noticed, I think by, you know, A.V. Hill, who apparently just notices everything, you know, back in the 1920s, which is just blows my mind. And he, what he did is he graphed the world records, I think in uh, across, you know, like the, like sprint distances to, um, you know, long distance competitions. And what he found is this exponentially decaying function where eventually it actually plateaus out. And, you know, so at, at this point, you know, I, I don't think he was super mathematically inclined to be like, oh, well, maybe there's an asymptote here. And if we do some modeling, we can actually figure that out. So Fast forward, you know, uh, 80 years, something like that. And people started to recognize that, you know, this was, you could actually fit mathematically um, this exponential function to these models. And what they were finding was that there eventually became a point where that curve approached a power output that could seemingly be sustained for extended periods of time. Um, and that was deemed that asymptote of that curve was deemed critical power. And then, you know, of course we're, we're trying to take mathematically what's happening and then compare it to physiologically what's happening. So the definition became the maximal oxidative uh, rate that could be sustained over extended periods of time. Um, and however, what critical power actually does is it just measures what your what your asymptote what your your you know s maximal sustainable power could be but based then off of you know what we know physiologically it was extended to oxidate you know your your maximal rate of oxidative capacity that could be ex or sustained for extended periods of time um one of the challenges with or then how do we actually like determine critical power because it's there's there's a number of different ways to do it. Um, we talked about the comparison between maximal lactate steady state and critical power, and what critical power requires you to do is have uh, three to five separate time to exhaustion trials, or they don't have to be time to exhaustion. They could be trials that land within the the two to fifteen minute mark. Two to fifteen minutes seems to be kind of that sweet spot where at where if you're if you're lower than two minutes, there's going to be a very large neuromuscular component to your your power output and other things like that. If you're outside of the fifteen minute mark, then you could be introducing uh, you know maybe substrate induced fatigue, which might shift the critical power down a little bit. Um, but that also might be relevant, right? You know, because physiology humans aren't perfect, so. What you would do if you were doing this in a lab-based setting is you'd go in, 
three to five separate times and you do a two minute trial, a five minute trial, 10 minute trial, an 11 minute trial and a 15 minute trial, for example. And then, you know, you would have this curve fit to your results. And if you're truly giving, um, you know, 100% for all of these different trials, then you should get within three to 5% a critical power, which is that asymptote of the curve. And then there's also another uh, variable that can be determined from critical power or the critical power curve, and it's called W prime. W prime is the work that you can do above critical power. So it, it gives you an idea of what your non-aerobic work capacity is. And I put that in air quotes because there's some evidence to suggest that uh, it, it, W prime is also connected to your ability to uptake and utilize oxygen as well. Um, so so it's all interconnected. And I think this is something that you know we at least you and I really appreciate is the fact that every all the systems within the body are, are interconnected. So if you manipulate one, you're probably going to manipulate the other. But uh, regardless, W prime has been shown to be kind of that non aerobic work capacity. So how much how much non aerobic reserve do you have if you're working out at critical power, and then want to go and exercise above critical power? How much time could you last uh, after that? Um, you can all, another thing you can do is you can, uh, if you can figure out the work done and how long it takes to do that in terms of time, you can make it a linear, uh, regression model where you can get, you know, a Y equals MX plus B. And if none of this math is making sense for me, just speaking it into your ears, read, <laughs> read the paper because they, they'll lay it out a little bit better. Um, but the slope of that line that M is going to be your critical power, and then the uh, the y-intercept is going to be your W prime, and you know from there you can actually translate this model from cycling, which is a power-based sport, to running or rowing or other you know things like that, where you can measure the distance covered and how long it takes you to to cover that distance, and then you can use that to create your linear model. Um, so does that kind of cover most of the definition? Yeah, it's an advanced way of determining what I always tell my students is imagine you're on a track and, uh, the assignment is you have to run as hard as you can indefinitely. You start out at a sprint. So you start out very, very fast, but very immediately your power starts to drop, mm -hmm. continues to drop, continues to drop, continues to drop in this parabola until your speed you kind of plateau now if you keep running you're going to continue to drop but the, the drop is going to be a lot slower as time goes on and so that's that asymptotic that's approaching the asymptote mm -hmm. and that is where critical power or uh, critical speed would be defined and why is that it's because our bioenergetic systems supply ATP in that relationship. We're able to supply a lot of ATP very quickly for a limited amount of time, mm -hmm. whereas we're able to produce uh, less ATP uh, over a longer period of time. And then there's that same relationship with our energetic systems and so that's how human bioenergetics is, is really used to define criti the, the critical power uh, concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that kind of links then critical power to the physiology, right? Totally. Where this, Absolutely. You know, if you're, if you're just looking at it, like this is almost, this is purely mathematical, right? You have somebody, you know, run on a treadmill until failure at two minutes, five minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes, and then you can actually get based on how much distance they covered, you can try to understand what the, what the speed is that they could potentially run indefinitely. And so it's, it's, a, it's a mathematical relationship, which then requires us as physiologists to try to explain that, you know, with, you know, like the, the explanation that you just gave. And I think too, I think, I think that might be one of the challenges with critical power is that we, we take these outputs over the course of our or the the best effort outputs and then we say 
you know, this is what you should be able to maintain for extended periods of time. And when you and I were working together, we would do these sort of tests. We would do a three minute, there's, okay, we'll talk about the three minute all out test in just a sec, but we do that. We do a critical power test and then we would have somebody try to ride at that power. And what we were noticing is like, you know, depending on how well-trained somebody is, if they're less well-trained, it's like 14 to 15 minutes. If they're more well-trained, you might be able to eke out 20, 24. And, you know, so then we were like, well, if critical power truly is, the maximal sustainable pace, then something is happening here, right? That we're, we're overestimating that if, if people could really only maintain that for, for 24 minutes. And, um, you know, so, so that's, that's just something to be aware of that if you actually do determine your critical power, your true sustainable pace over time is probably going to be a bit lower than that. And it's going to be lower depending on how well-trained you are. Yep. And it's going to also, within an individual is going to vary based on hydration status, based on nutrition, uh, you know, glycogen stores. It's also going to be more dynamic, kind of like weight. I guess we don't think of body weight as as very dynamic because, uh, one, we don't measure it all that often, but Mm -hmm. body weight's constantly changing based on our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Same thing with critical power. And that's what makes it, that's what introduces another level of uh, sophistication that that makes critical power, critical speed a little bit more complicated to fully understand. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, I, I think you know, all of like the the down the the quote unquote limitations or downfalls to critical power are or are there for every other threshold variable that we're trying to determine more, too. Probably more so even. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if like, and this is something that I think is very underappreciated is because physiological testing is not available to, uh, you know, to the masses to repeat time and time and time again, it's really hard to actually start to understand what the measurement variability is and what the biological variability is. Because and and this is actually I I was I was talking to uh, Dr. Billy Spurlick, who's a training um, intensity distribution and, uh, you know, amongst a lot of other things that he's interested in, he just published a paper. Well, I guess in 2022 published a paper, they did a VO two max test every week for nine weeks. And then they looked at what the most variable, you know, variables were throughout that. And for the most part, you know, like things like VO two max, other things like that, it was probably like two to 5%, which is like, okay, that makes sense. But the thing that stood out to me was that lactate, the variability in lactate readings was like 10 to 20% across the the different trials and stuff. And that's like, you know, it's like, okay, well, that's a lot, but it highlights the fact that lactate is kind of the integration of your nutrition status, your hydration status, your uh, recovery status, like your fatigue status, all of these different things. And it doesn't mean that lactate is, you know, that you just throw lactate out and say, oh, I don't, you know, this is useless because it's so variable. It's just requires a lot more understanding to say, okay, well, what's actually changing that variable or that lactate value based on the the test that you're doing? Because they're doing the same test every single, you know, week for nine weeks and lactate's fluctuating 10 to 20%, which is What else did crazy. they look at? Like what other variables? <sighs> I gotta look, I gotta look through it, but um, they looked that at sounds ventil- interesting. Yeah, they looked at heart rate, ventilatory variables. Um, oh man, I don't even I don't I don't know the rest. But I mean, I've kind of been doing some personal experiments as well sure. with with that step test using um, Moxie heart rate and power. And I don't I don't have a coefficient of variation yet, but I, I could very easily do it. Um, and what I've found is that. From a variability point of view, it's if you actually just look at the graphs, it doesn't seem like anything is is highly variable. Um, I, I mean, and w- when I mean that, it's like heart rate or SMO2 because those are the two you know internal variables that I'm measuring. Power is exactly the same every single day, um, but when you combine those small changes in heart rate and small changes in SMO2, you actually get pretty robust changes in. 
uh, you know, how your body is physiologically responding. So, so again, I don't, I don't, I don't view that as a limitation to the numbers. I actually view that as a feature, right? If we're able to detect those changes and we know that say measurement variability is pretty low, then we can, uh, ascribe those changes to biological differences. And the biggest changes that I find, you know, where heart rate might be a little elevated, SMO2 might, SMO2 is interesting because it can go both down or up depending on, you know, how fatigued you are and the type of fatigue that you, you induce. But, um, when those change, they're almost exclusively after I do really, really hard days, especially when I run and get the eccentric loading. Cause I do, I do a lot of hill work. So, so those are the biggest things that move the needle for me as a, you know, in terms of changing my physiological response to, uh, to, to exercise. So it's interesting. So I just read a study this week. We went over it in senior seminar that detailed how skeletal muscle fibers, especially following heavy eccentric loading, split. And part of the recovery process is the, that split fiber reforming, like uh, re regenerating into, into one. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. That's super interesting and coincidental that you just said that on a week that I just read that paper mm -hmm. and because I never knew that. And so this was... A paper that uh, started to answer a lot of questions about we we weren't sure whether or not fiber type could shift mm -hmm. over time. Right? I remember in, in in my masters, you were like like you know because of the data at the time, you were like, nope, no shifting of fibers. Like that's that's most likely not happening. Right? Has your has your opinion maybe changed a little? It's solidified. Ah, okay. It's even more solidified that m most likely uh, post-mitotic adult mature skilled muscle um, does not shift myosin type heavy one, chain expression. Yeah, from one to two. But, but it does seem like there's variation within the fast twitch fibers okay. to shift. Yeah. What about – but but I, I also think, though, too, we have to remember that phenotypic changes can – greatly change for sure oh yeah the, the the muscle plasticity is real you don't have to shift fiber types just to experience muscle plasticity absolutely right. and there's more and more evidence coming out to suggest that even uh typing with myosin atpase isoform yeah. isn't the best way to to fiber type maybe too simplified you think right yeah, yep. and that's like, I mean, that's what we find with uh, mitochondrial, um, you know, like people are measuring citrate synthase and they're like, oh, well, that's oh, a marker yeah. of volume, right? It's like, yeah, at the time, that's probably the best way, but we need, but when I was doing my PhD, we measured changes to complex one, complex two, complex three, four, and five, citrate synthase changes, like all this sort of stuff. And every single one of them was changing differently. So Absolutely. it's like, it's, it's like, well, what the hell do you actually use? And I remember a paper by Dr. Miller and Hamilton that was like, you can't use one marker. And unless so. it's maybe cristate density, possibly. <laughs> yes. That may be the one marker you can. I, I was, I was thinking about this because, so another paper that, that recently was published that has uh, Robbie Jacobs' name on it. Um, yeah, yeah. Looking around. Yeah. It's, uh, looks at Christe density and we're going to go really deep into the mitochondrial weeds coming up in a couple of weeks. So we'll, we'll probably follow up, but what your Christe are is they're, um, essentially invaginations in, uh, you know, or, or foldings of the inner mitochondrial membrane. And from there, uh, I think those are could be considered the functional unit of the mitochondria. That's what it seems like because I think, you know, the the more folds you have, the more surface area you're going to have, the more surface area you have, the more you can probably pack in more mitochondrial complexes, other things like that. And then of course we get into like, you know, complex uh super complex formation and other things which haven't been shown to make mitochondria more 
economic or efficient, but I think are a way of organizing things a little bit better in order to pack more, you know, say mitochondrial functional units into one place. So it's like super complex formation, crystal density changes, and then you're pa- you're just packing in more and more and more and more because that's what. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, that's what that paper kind of came to the conclusion is that people with more cristae or more dense cristae within their mitochondria, that was really the the big determining factor of their mitochondrial, um, you know, uh, oxygen, oxygen utilization. Yep. Mitochondrial is, volume was good. Cristae density was better. Yeah. Which is so wild. Really, really cool. Okay, so we we dove we dove in. We talked about variability. Oh, the last thing I wanna I wanted to mention. So with like the the splitting sort of stuff. So what I see in those repeated step tests is that until about the until over first threshold, which which is also a little variable, um, there's not much change in my physiological response. Meaning. The, that performance index that I think you and I have talked about offline stays almost exactly the same. And then it's once I get above first threshold, that's where I start to see the bigger differences. And then I imagine if I had, if I push myself going above second threshold, it would be even more variable. Um, so this which, brings up a good question because if you read Asker Eukendrup's literature on FatMax, Mm-hmm. which which exists right around you know closer to that that first threshold he talks about fat max is highly variable not just inter but uh, intra individual differences are are pretty high mm-hmm. i uh i don't know enough to to really even begin to attempt to refute that um but given what you just said do you believe that? That it that because it then is... fat max would have to be fairly more static. It's it's definitely a dynamic measure as well. But as you said, at those lower intensities up until moderate intensity exercise, your biological variables are pretty consistent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that's but I'm not measuring that between myself and other individuals, so. So maybe it's fat max or first threshold within an individual isn't really changing too much, but it's it's variable across the board. And it may it would make sense, right? If somebody is eating more fat and less carbohydrates, of course they're going to have higher fat oxidation. There was um, there was some data that was that was shared with me the other day where um, the guy was looking at where fat max was occurring based off of VO two max uh, tests in high level cyclist the first time the the cyclist came he uh his his carbohydrate oxidation was like through the roof cuz he was he was under eating he was super super stressed out so his cortisol levels and uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine were super super high but then what they did is they actually had him eat more they didn't have him focus on fats or anything they just had him eat more so he was like less less stressed and his fat oxidation like went from 0.4 to like 0.8 in the course of, you know, like a couple of months of him just eating enough and, you know, and then essentially being able to spare that carbohydrate for later and later and later. So I, I think I think it's really multifaceted. And I think, you know, we, this is another thing Dr. Spurlock and I talked a lot about is he is not convinced that the um the 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 response or the variability in the response to training can be explained by just looking at the training. He thinks you need to look at the entire day's worth of stress because he he's got some really really compelling cool data to show that individuals who are more responsive to training actually move more throughout the day. Hmm. Whereas whereas others might move might not move quite as bit. Uh, or quite as much. Um, so yeah. So it, it, and you know, that's just, that was, that was just him kind of off the cuff, you know, like sharing that with me. So I, I, I hope that was okay with him. Um, but it's not giving away, you know, he's done some really, really cool data and he, or data collection. And he thinks that, you know, it, we have to look at the entire day's worth of, of, of data to get a better idea of what the, what the environment is because even if you exercise for 
four hours a day, which would be a lot of exercise, that's only a sixth of your day, right? right. Oh, totally. So, so there's a lot. There's a lot that goes on behind, not behind the scenes, but outside of training that could be affecting things like fat max, like critical power, like other things like that. So, um, so yeah, it's 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 really interesting, and I think. You know, so we, we were talking about like variability and variability in these different measurements and other things like that. And I think you just have to remind you just have to remind yourself what is a measurement actually trying to tell us. Critical power is telling you at at face value what that mathematical asymptote is. That's what it is at face value. But then if we start to dig into the physiology of things a little bit more, it's been proposed that critical oxygen or dang it, just gave it away. That critical power <laughs> is giving us the the highest rate of oxidation or uh, fo- oxidative phosphorylation that our muscles can maintain and supply ATP to our contractile fibers for. Right. Maximal That's like steady state metabolism. Yep. Maximal. M- yep. Maximal metabolic steady state. Yeah. Maximal metabolic steady state. Exactly. Yeah. So. So and we can we can talk about the uh, you know like variant variations in W prime and other things like that in a little bit, but I think I, let's transition to this idea of critical oxygen and and this is kind of where the 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 name of the podcast came from. So I'm going to name this uh, this podcast episode the the origin story of critical oxygen or something along those lines. Totally, because if um, critical power represents maximal metabolic steady state then that represents a, a critical metabolic rate mm-hmm. and human metabolism the primary supplier of atp is through aerobic metabolism mm-hmm. so a critical metabolic rate it, it, it's very easy to transition into a critical oxygen yeah exactly so so this this idea has been floated around for a while. And I can't remember if it was because back it was back in 2017 that I was or 2017, 18, 19 that I was a master's student. And you and I had been kind of playing with this idea actually is if we do a three minute all out test, what does that actually look like in terms of these other intrinsic variables like VO2 max, um, SMO2, but, um, you know, by wearing a Nears uh, device on your leg. Uh, I, I don't even think we talked really about lactate and stuff like that just because we weren't measuring lactate at the time. But what we were finding is that with the three-minute test, and this is like this is so much pilot, pilot study stuff that I was doing, is I would just go into the lab and I would just do repeat three-minute tests. And I would wear, you know, the mask to do, to, you know, to do my maximal oxygen consumption. I would wear uh, Moxie's. Because at the time, I actually just had started to work with Moxie as their staff physiologist as well. So I was like, okay, well, let's just see what this device is actually, you know, w- what it can do. And what I what I was finding is that, first of all, within three minutes, you could reach VO2 max. Like, so if you wanted to just do VO2 max testing, you could measure someone's VO2 max if they just did a three-minute all-out test. Um, it's miserable and requires, like a, like, a really, really hard effort, but... Three minutes, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty time efficient, I would say. You've done wind um, gates, haven't you? Y- yeah, I did. I did. Uh, so I got asked to go to Moxie Summit the first year I was working for them. And that was I like in I Chicago or something. This. And they had me, you know, wear a, a VO2, uh, like a VO2 master. <laughs> and uh, I was wearing a bunch of Moxies as well. And they were like, okay, you're going to do repeat wind gate tests. And we're just going to see. And you know, this is one of those things where I was like, okay, like hindsight's twenty twenty, but they're like, okay, you're going to do four of them. The first one, I went as hard as I possibly could, like, like almost throwing up. Like I've never had this happen to me before, but I got like a, I, I induced a migraine. It was so bad because, you know, I just, I produced probably so many metabolites that just my body could just not handle it. So they're like, okay, you know, now like two and a half, three and a half minute rest, you know, because that's the typical Wingate protocol. So you got another one in you, Phil? I'm like, yeah, yeah I think so. I, I was like, I was probably pretty pale at the time too, um, you know, just because I was like dying. So I did another one 
And of course, it was like you know, it went from it, it went from you know, like like power output of like twelve hundred to like eight hundred or something like that. They're like, oh boy, Phil's Phil's suffering here. So, and I'm doing this in front of a room of I think like fifty people who had signed up to do like the, the summit at the time. And I didn't want to I didn't want to look like you know I was uh, you know giving up. But after the third one, I was like, guys, I got a splitting headache. I might be dying right now. This is the worst you know thing I've ever done. So. Um, and we were wearing a moxie and, and now, now I'm giving, I'm giving Robbie a conniption too. So hopefully he doesn't die on the podcast, but, um, but the, the crazy thing is, is that, you know, I, I can't remember if we could elicit VO2 max within those 30 seconds, it would obviously get really, really high, but SMO2 would plummet. And that, that blows people's minds when they start to think about it, because you're, you're always presented with these bioenergetic models that are like, Oh, phosphocreatine, you know, zero to 10 seconds. And then 10, 10 seconds, maybe 30 seconds up to two minutes is your glycogen system. And then after that is your, you know, oxidative phosphorylation system. Oxygen is being used at all times, no matter what it is. And you might see a two, two to five second delay if, if you're using like Moxie Nears data, but that's just because the sampling rate has to catch up. And so the sampling actually results in a delay. Um, so, so what you see with this three minute all out test, when you're wearing, uh, when you're doing a, the, the all out test and when you're measuring power and then SMO two is that, you know, with power three minute all out, you're, you, you go as hard as you can and then it'll, it'll taper off as you deplete your W prime and then you'll find it taper off for the last, if you're actually pushing yourself hard enough for the last two minutes, actually, um, you take that probably last minute average power, that's your critical power. You can take the derivative, so the area under the curve of the entire thing, that's your W prime. Um, and if you're wearing a Moxie, or I say Moxie just because that's the nearest device that I use and I, I still work for the company. But if you're wearing a nearest device, what you would see is you see right at the beginning, SMO2 plummets. And depending on how hard you're going, it's probably going to reach you know some some low point, which could be anywhere between five and 25%, depending on who you are, it might be a little higher for some, some individuals, but then it actually gradually starts to come back up because what happens is you actually shift, I think, uh, fiber type recruitment and you get to a point where you're recruiting really probably mostly type one fibers towards the end. So you have this like, you know, dip, come back up and then stabilize. And what you can do is you can take the derivative, or I guess the integral, the area under the curve um, of that first drop. And then if there's any area under the curve for um, before it comes back to steady state, you integrate that too. And you get this uh, oxygenation capacity or O prime. And then the, the flat portion is your critical oxygen. Or critical oxygenation, and I can't take credit for actually coming up with critical oxygen. Uh, this was coined by a colleague of mine who I've worked with for forever now, Andrew Feldman, and his uh, I think his PhD advisor. I think his name is Dan Dan Erlicker. Um, but there was a there's a paper that they published that's called "Critical Oxygenation: Can Muscle Oxygenation Inform Us About Critical Power." And, uh, you know, they published that, I think, in, in 2021. Um, so, you know, like all of these things, you know, had been had been talked about. And when I was trying to come up with my name for, you know, like the this podcast, this social media, this business, I was like, you know, my appreciation for for endurance performance comes down to that that mitochondrial capillary myoglobin axis that we've talked about the axis of oxidation, um, where the most important thing I believe is the, our ability to continually supply oxygen to our mitochondria at a very, very high level. And I think that's kind of where, you know, our, our endurance performance lies. So our critical oxygenation is probably one of if not the most important variables for endurance performance. So that's where, that's actually where the name came from. Um, and those are all, you know, it's like, obviously that, that is super, super biased in terms of I'm a skeletal muscle physiologist, more in particular, I'm a skeletal muscle mitochondrial physiologist. Um, so, so yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of where that name came from. 
there's so much to unpack after all that. <laughs> First of all, I've I've heard from several people that the three minute all out test is actually better than the Wingate. That's why I brought brought the Wingate better for better than the Wingate for easier for to tolerate. Like, huh? I've heard more people complain about the discomfort of a Wingate than the three minute all out test. Somehow, yeah. I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. Also, well, in a in a in a in a properly done Wingate, what you're doing is like you you cycle up super super high like 130 rpms and then they just smash the resistance on you so it's like just riding into mud and trying to continue to ride and for some reason not for some reason i mean we kind of know mechanisms of fatigue and stuff like that but you have this massive accumulation of uh you know hydrogens inorganic phosphates that not only you know accelerate fatigue but also your your body just can't you can't breathe fast enough to get rid of it and the single best way, uh, well, this is what I've been told, single best way of getting rid of uh, acid or hydrogens is to throw up. So, right, because your your stomach is super acidic. But I, I, I struggle with that because <clears throat> that's not indicative of, you know, that's outside of your bloodstream. So it's not quite as indicative of total pH. Um, but that's just something I heard. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was interesting. Also, if you're creating, you know, tons and tons of hydrogens, CO2 production is going to go way up. Your brain is going to be like, oh my gosh, we're dying because you can't breathe fast enough. So then there's going to be all of these downstream, you know, upregulation probably of, of, uh, uh, of counter-regulatory hormones like epinephrine, norepinephrine, all that sort of stuff. And that also, if you have enough of a spike, will make you expel from both ends because you got to get the hell out of there. Um, well, and also Lots to you, unpack there too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially given what your dog did this morning. I know. Oh my gosh. We don't need to relive that. <laughs> but you were talking about how SMO2 bumps up at the end. Mm-hmm. And, and then you talked about how you, you focused on just the oxygen utilization Whereas there's probably a reciprocal change in the oxygen delivery, right? Mm-hmm. The body's probably trying to auto-regulate to get to provide as much oxygen to that working muscle as possible, while the muscle slowly is using lowering its metabolic rate to that critical mm-hmm. metabolic rate, mm-hmm. uh, parallel with critical oxygenation, right? That's that's all interesting. I like hearing. I don't get to do that is the worst part I think about my current job day in, day out. I don't get enough. I don't get to play with data enough. I love, Mm -hmm. I love spending time with data and it's, it's the easiest way for me to learn the quickest way for me to learn. And so I love hearing about you talk about this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, so if we think about it and this is like one of the papers that I recently published with, uh, Andrew Feldman and then uh, Dr. Brett Kirby, who's one of one of our friends and colleagues, works over at Nike. You might know him. Um, he he's he was only the physiologist on the Breaking Two project, but I digress. Um, really smart guy. But we looked at the 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 slopes, so the rate of change of SMO two at uh, you know during a step test. And what we did is we related those to lactate values and essentially saw that there was a, a, a inverse mirrored relationship of as SMO2 slope goes down, so more and more negative, meaning you're demanding more and more oxygen compared to how much your body can actually, or your cardiovascular system can deliver, you get a reciprocal increase in lactate production into the blood. So everyone's looking at lactate, right? But we have kind of the canary in the coal mine, which is which is our ability to, uh, you know, uh, utilize or get oxygen to the working muscle and then utilize it. Um, so, so that's another thing that kind of, you know, for me cements this idea of critical oxygen might be a little bit more of that domino effect because the critical oxygen point is probably going to then dictate your critical lactate point or your maximum, maybe your maximal lactate steady state, um, other things like that, because they are so interconnected and, uh, Brett followed up, you know, I, I, I can't remember. I think Brett's papers, you know, have, have been kind of in parallel with Andrew's papers being published. So Brett did a paper 
that he's done a bunch of them now, but the first, I think one of the first ones he did was looking at the, uh, the, the relationship between critical power and critical oxygenation. So he took this idea and he said, okay, well, if this is actually true, then we should have a negative slope uh, if we're working harder than critical power and we should have a flat or a positive slope if we're working lower than critical power. And sure enough, um, he found that. So it's like, okay, well, that cements the idea. But the big thing that we have to remind ourselves of, NIRS is only measuring a very small portion of the muscle. So it may not be 100% indicative of what's actually going on in full body physiology. So so again, what are the limitations to the measurement? NIRS is actually a small, uh, a small device measuring a small proportion of your muscle. So you just have to keep that in mind. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater just like you know, as much as I want to throw lactate out with, with the blood sampling, you, you don't throw it out because there's things you can learn from it. And, um, and then it, then what you can start to do is you start to put it on different muscle groups, right? You can put it on a vastus lateralis. You can put it on a rectus femoris, especially for cycling. What's really interesting is that there seems to be different muscles limiting, um, based on different positions of cycling. So what we see with, um, with, with cycling in kind of an upright position, so mountain biking, road biking, those sort of things, the rectus femoris actually seems to be more lim- the, the, the most limiting uh, exercise performance, whereas if you ride in the arrow position a lot where you have that really, really close, like tight hip angle, it's more the vastus lateralis that actually is the, uh, the limiting factor. So um, what you'll see is if you do a, an incremental step test, you'll see SMO2 in a, where I'm going to use myself as, a, as an example. I mountain bike a lot. It's r- fairly upright. Um, so with that prediction, we would say, okay, maybe the rectus femoris is actually what's limiting performance. So if we look at the vastus lateralis during a step test, we see power or uh, SMO2 go down, 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 down. And, you know, if you have like steps, then it'll, it'll even out, even out, even out. But eventually what happens is for me, SMO2 actually reaches a plateau and will just stay there and just stay flat. So this is something that I noticed in some people that we tested is like they would get, you know, to that second inflection point and then just hold SMO2 there for, you know, the next, I don't know, three steps or something like that. But what ha- what's happening in the rectus femoris is interesting. So in the beginning, the rectus femoris probably isn't too engaged. So SMO2 goes way up. And then as you continue to increase the power output, it'll start to trickle down a little bit until you get to a point where it's like, okay, you're working hard now. And I, I, I'm not 100% sure if it's 100% correlated with that second inflection point flipping over, but you see a pretty massive decrease in SMO2. And I know I'm reaching fatigue when the SMO2 is the lowest point that it's at for both my vastus lateralis and then my rectus femoris. So if I get to a point where I'm like, okay, vastus lateralis is 15%. If rectus femoris is still at 40, I know I have gas in the tank. But as that gets closer and closer to 15, and I don't know if there's like, you know, again, I don't know if there's another correlation with like, like 15% for me personally. Um, but vastus slider or uh, rectus femoris seems as it gets closer and closer to 15, it's getting harder and harder because it's requiring me to recruit more and more muscle fibers from my rectus femoris in order to actually, uh, get the power output that I want. So yeah, just, uh, just interesting observations and just something to, to take into account when you're trying to measure this sort of stuff. Do you ever lose signal? Because when I l- would look at your your uh, measures from the from your thesis, master's mm-hmm. thesis, as well as uh, several other cyclists, sometimes oxygenation would drop so low that you would actually lose values. That that used to happen a little bit more commonly for me, just because I think I don't think I was placing it correctly. But now that I figured out, a, like, so, so what I tell people is it's, you know, there's a, there's a learning curve to, to where to place the a NIRS device and what you're looking for. And this is so hard to actually objectively 
figure out because it's like, oh, well, do you want the range to be 10 to 80%? It's like, I don't know, because some people, their dynamic range might be 60% maximum to 40% or 80% to 60%. Like it, it might be like that. But what you're, what you, what you try to do is you try over time to dial in the placement that's going to give you the most dynamic range without those, uh, you know, falling out of, of data, because what happened, what can happen is um, what the what the data or what the Moxie is actually trying to do is solve an algorithm based on what it thinks your adipose tissue thickness is, your uh, SMO2 is, and other things like that. So if it's if it's in the middle of, of two solutions, it might be bouncing back and forth. And I don't think that's that's not really related to like data f falling out. That could be related to the the Moxie not being you know. Uh, flush with the with the uh, tissue but if you find very very bouncy data or noisy data you got to move you like you got to move it and it doesn't have to be that much you're just looking for you know like a very muscular portion and you know then you just want to make sure it's just flush with the skin um, but I can't yeah it's it's tough to say I don't think because I had I, ha I actually I did have the dropouts happen when I was doing it on my calf but I think that was more of a Garmin issue um, like I was collecting, you know, the data on a Garmin watch and then something was happening where the communication from my wrist to my, to my calf wasn't occurring. Um, but yeah, those are all like troubleshooting things that we always talk about, you know, to people. It's interesting to hear that because Kirby's first paper where he was talking about the relationship of the slope change in SMO2 in relation to critical power, didn't he also show that you can put it like on a non-active, like he, he mm -hmm. would put put it on the arm or something, and and you could still see the similar changes mm -hmm. in SMO two reflected across the different intensities in relation to critical power, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I think that is a phenomenon that is probably seen um, exclusively in high to elite level athletes. Um, and the reason for that is because what I find, especially with people who aren't very well trained, is that they have a really tough time um, desaturating. So if you're if you're an individual who you know is like, okay, I'm going from sedentary to trying to train a little bit more, most likely your mitochondrial populations aren't robustly uh, you know formed quite yet. Um, maybe your crystal density isn't formed well. Maybe your mitochondrial volume density isn't isn't good. Maybe your capillary density isn't good. Um, and there was actually just a paper uh, that was published this week. That's what that, I was going to get up. I was going to yeah. pop it up. Yeah. So so I this is this is what I love the the Instagram for is that there is a guy. His name is also Phil. I I don't know if he want, goes by Phil or Philip, but it's F I L I P. Um, so we're going to be recording a podcast tomorrow, and he sent me that paper. He was like, oh. It looks like in these sedentary individuals, the the limitation goes from a muscular limitation when they're sedentary to a cardio or to a central uh, limitation after like you know three or four weeks of training, something like that. Hmm, sounds like it fits my theory thus far, mm -hmm. and that's Russ Richardson and Peter Wagner. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, he, Peter Wagner was the biggest uh, proponent for diffusive limitations of vo2 max so having his name on research that's coming out that's showing or even suggesting that maybe oxygen delivery is uh limiting well and that's it, what's so funny about this is that that's what we see when we do the limiter assessment for people uh with with moxie and this this limiter assessment has been around for 10 or 15 years so like so you know this is where it's like research takes time to to catch up to it but it, it is super nice to actually have that be validated now because almost exclusively that's what we see is we see when we get somebody in who's sedentary, they, you know, whether it's a, a recruitment issue or a mitochondrial issue is still yet to be determined. But in the beginning, they're just not able to actually desaturate, you know, within their tissue and SMO2 just stays high. So it's like, you know, if people aren't able to actually desaturate under 60%, we generally say that's probably a muscular utilization issue. And then we just prescribe high intensity interval training or sprint interval training, <laughs> right? Because that's like, that's the single most potent way of, of increasing your mitochondrial function quickly.
you prescribe the metabolic sledgehammer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you're trying to if you're trying to carve the statue of David, right, you take your sledgehammer first, get all the big chunks out of it, and then you can tweak it and tune it with your zone two training, right? Um, that's that's the analogy I've been using lately with people. Um, but yeah, I'm also <laughs> we got we're we're going we're not going all over the place but the, it's just like bringing up all of these ideas that i've been well, having well it's all lately. they're all related they're all peripherally related to critical power right and that that's the mm-hmm. that's the beauty of this measurement um especially incorporating w prime it's an it's a complete description of performance something that mm-hmm. no other threshold measurement provides someone it's it yes it it is a complete measurement of performance within the maybe 30 to 60 minute range and i guess Mm. you can extend it out right because you can then start to think about w prime and w prime prime repletion maybe oxygen prime um and those sort of things but the channel again like the the challenge i think then becomes is like well what's the translatability of this right now cuz there are some programs out there that actually allow you to measure critical power and then you know like measure your w prime and we'll say okay you're probably coming to you know depletion of your w prime here um but that's very few and few and far between at least right now and from a critical oxygen perspective still we we don't have the ability to say you know, on any given day, what is your O prime? You know, what is your, your, I get, we could pretty easily figure out your critical oxygenation or your maximal oxygen steady state or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's, it's that kind of elusive, like O prime W prime, which it seems like that's a little bit more robust in terms of not changing as much on a day-to-day basis. But I, I for sure think that it does change, you know, just based off, like if you're fatigued one day or not, well, so that's what that change. article talks about. I, I think that the the difficulty in in fully implementing or applying the critical power model is W prime mm-hmm. or D prime in running, because they talk at the end of the article how in fatigue, fit, longer duration exercise W prime starts to change. Mm-hmm. But if you look at day day to day variation for shorter exercise, just like you said, W prime is very static. Mm-hmm. And so, trying to imagine maybe what Andy Jones is thinking, he's the one that coined this term physiologic resilience, physiological resilience. Right. And so, I can only imagine that he's looking at explaining or defining physiologic resilience as the characteristic to help us understand the loss of w prime over time is mm-hmm. it is it this uh continual kind of increase in inorganic phosphate is it temperature i wonder mm-hmm. if temperature plays it, a role in glycogen um, because there, totally. there was another cuz there was another paper that just came out in in Journal of Physiology that was looking at the relationship between glycogen availability and a disbalance of uh potassium. Cool. Yeah, so I I'll, I'll send you all these papers okay. but um but that one that one seems really cool where they were they were they they did this in like, you know, um uh in muscle fibers that were taken out of, you know, like a like a sample and then they incubated some in, you know, uh, no, no glucose, some in some, and then they did, you know, like the contract, the simulated contractions. But what they were finding was that there was a relationship between um, the rate of gly- or glycogen depletion and the ability to maintain your your potassium gradient. And I was like, so if you think about it, this is this is what this is where I immediately went is because glycolysis is occurring in the kind of uh, interstitial space, right, or the interstitial fluid. And you're going to have to maintain those gradients based off of ATP that's generated from that area, then it makes sense that those would be connected because the ATP from glycolysis could be going directly to the maintenance of, of the, the sodium potassium pumps, right? And those require ATP in order to actually maintain those gradients. So you get less For excitable, sure. you get less excitable with, with less glycogen. And if you look at the 
heterogeneity of glycogen stores within the muscle, the glycogen stores that are closest to sodium potassium pumps, I think are the most maintained. You see hmm. the storage around the sarcoplasmic reticulum and intramyofibrillar stores are preferentially depleted first. Okay. So maybe it's like kind of like the last ditch effort, right? right. Is to, to maintain that because you have to maintain excitability in order for that muscle to continue totally. to contract. So maybe it is the, well, the last. And I really believe that um, the burning sensation associated with fatigue is potassium. I remember it's, you telling me it's that. It's not hydrogen. I, I really think No, it's that the lactic it's acid. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, boy. I know. You're like, if I didn't teach you one thing when you were in your master's degree. Oh, I, I just gave an exam in ex-phys, and I have a question about lactic acid, and there's 70% of my class that didn't answer the way that I was pretty sure I trained them to think. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'll celebrate them for being independent thinkers, but uh, they got it wrong. Yeah, no, I know, and it, but that's the thing is like it's so hard to break the that mindset, right? Of oh well, I've always been taught that lactic acid, lactate buildup within the blood is what's causing fatigue. Therefore, that I think that's like when you panic, that's your default, you know, totally. sort of thinking. Totally. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it's and you know that's like we've we've had a lot of it's like been an uphill battle being like oh well you know rate of SMO two change so that that change over time that slope is highly highly correlated with lactate production into the blood and so many people have pushed back being like there's like you know there's no way that this is connected or not maybe not there's no way but like you need a preponderance of evidence to collect or to connect this just because you know it's like whenever you have a, a new measurement that's coming up you have to provide without a beyond a shadow of a doubt that what you're measuring is what you're truly measuring and you know that the the theory behind it is enough to shift the thinking of of maybe 40 50 60 years worth of uh data which is it's it can be tough and i had i've had questions like i first shared this data um two moxie summits ago and i remember distinctly somebody you know saying something that's just like well this isn't convincing enough for me to stop using lactate you know essentially like something along those lines i'm like that's fair but it's also convincing enough for me not to use lactate right so that's <laughs> that's like not to say so again i i am going to i'm going to you know play a little bit more of like the the middle of the the road here is there it is not to say that there can be some value derived from lactate measures i just think that we put a, almost too much emphasis on the use of lactate especially within you know within like the the cycling world because that's just what what people have have grown up with are used to other things like that but i i i want to implore people like be be open minded about new technology that's coming out because don't you know you don't need to be the first adopter of this sort of stuff have healthy skepticism and you know i i was too when i first started and i i know you were with like using the moxie you're like there is no way this 800 dollars device is going to be as good as you know like another continuous wave nears that's 30 or forty thousand dollars. but i i think that you've slowly been convinced over time based on all the different you know publications that have come out i mean all of all of, if not most of the papers that Brett has published are with Moxie. And I know for a fact they have a lot of Moxie monitors over at Nike. Yep. Um, he helped model the Breaking 2 project Yeah, with, with Moxies. I mean, yeah. he gave a keynote uh, presentation about it at ACSM. I think it was the summer right before you came to do your master's. Okay. I think it was 2017 in Denver. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, but like always have a healthy skepticism and whenever you're adopting new technology, I think it's a good, a, a good chance to be able to experiment with stuff, totally. play around with stuff. Like worst case scenario, you return it to, you know, the company and you say, okay, well, that wasn't for me. I'm just going to stick with, you know, what I know. Um, but, but yeah, so, so I, I hope everybody got a, got a good kick out of, you know, kind of like this discussion of critical power and kind of the origin story of critical oxygen and critical oxygenation. Um, I, I truly think that um, the use of NEARS 
could be kind of that next step in endurance performance measurements in in uh, metrics because what I've seen is so many different ways of actually being able to use it that power just simply can't do, right? Oxygenation changes on a daily basis like we've been talking about. So it gives you the ability to monitor local fatigue. If you're measuring with a heart rate monitor too, you have whole systemic fatigue. And then you can start to get an idea of how that's actually translating to your mechanical power as well. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you guys with that. Uh, Robbie, do you want to leave them with, with anything else? I agree. I totally agree. I think as we become more knowledgeable in the physiology behind these measures, I 100% believe that uh, NEAR's incorporation into training is, is the future for sure. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, we'll, we'll leave you guys there, hopefully pondering and having some good questions. Comment down below if you're on YouTube. Reach out to me on critical or at critical02 on Instagram. Um, you can find Dr. Jacobs on Zwift or uh, Twitter uh, or X, whatever you want to call it. Ask him questions if you have questions for him. Um, and until the next one, we'll, we'll catch you guys later. <laughs>